Welcome to Rule of Law Talk, a podcast series of the World Justice Project designed to bring you insights and learning from leading thinkers and doers working to advance the rule of law around the world. I'm Joe Haley, Mellon ACLS Public Fellow and Program Manager for the Rule of Law Solutions Initiative. This episode will examine access to justice, the prevention of corruption, and emerging threats to rule of law in the Philippines. I speak with the team at WeSolve, a civil society organization working to build a culture of open data and transparent budgeting, starting with greater accountability for the expenditure of public funds on the response to COVID-19. The World Justice Project recently recognized WeSolve for their work on the Citizens Budget Tracker, a collaborative effort to monitor government spending on the response to COVID-19. The Citizens Budget Tracker received an honorable mention in the 2021 World Justice Challenge, a global competition to identify, recognize, and promote good practices and high-impact projects and policies to protect and advance areas of the rule of law most affected by the pandemic. We also discuss a more recent initiative, the Every Filipino Should Count project, which aims to fund the delayed birth registration of undocumented Filipinos from low-income households, to streamline birth registration requirements in local government units, to increase awareness of the importance of birth registration, and to lobby more effective, inclusive, and responsive civil registration policies, both at the national and local levels. As self-described movement makers, the team at WeSolve is working to build coalitions that include a variety of stakeholders across government and civil society to empower the people of the Philippines to live with dignity, liberty, and hope. The following conversation includes three members of the WeSolve team. Leading the discussion is Ken Abante, co-head of practice. Hi, I'm Ken Abante of the Citizens Budget Tracker, uh, coordinator and head of practice of WeSolve. Ken is an advocate, researcher, educator, and coalition organizer who has been shepherding the Citizens Budget Tracker as well as the Move as One Coalition focused on public transport and the Data for Empowerment Alliance. Formerly of the Department of Finance, Ken trains public servants in the Philippines. He holds a master's in public administration and international development from the Harvard Kennedy School. Also joining the discussion is Jesha Viliasis. Hello, I'm Jesha Viliasis and I'm the and I'm a researcher from ESOL. Jesh is an action researcher, organizer, and a senior associate for WeSolve's birth registration initiative. She has eight years of experience facilitating programs and building partnerships with civil society and local governments. She teaches policy at the University of Santo Tomas and is an advocate of play and learning as the executive director of the Philippine Toy Library. Jesh holds a master's in public administration from the University of the Philippines. Finally, we are joined by Leo Camacho. Hello, my name is Leo Camacho and I'm the legal counsel of the Citizens Budget Tracker. Leo is an MPP candidate at the University of Cambridge, an assistant professorial lecturer at De La Salle University, and a member of the Philippine Bar. The COVID-19 pandemic has posed unprecedented challenges for both public health and the rule of law in the Philippines. According to a preliminary analysis conducted by the United Nations Office of Development Cooperation, UNODC, 
The Philippines was one of two countries in Southeast Asia where initial COVID emergency support packages were implemented by a legislative act rather than an emergency decree. Initially, this support was limited to cash payments or grants intended to benefit individuals and small to medium-sized enterprises. These packages were implemented by mayors and local procurement departments, enhancing the need for transparency at the local level. At the same time, a new Act of Parliament granted the President sweeping authority to reallocate, realign, and reprogram more than half the national budget. This law, the Bayanahan to Heal as One Act, provides for emergency cash subsidies to 18 million low-income households, as well as cash reimbursements for frontline healthcare workers who fall seriously ill or die while fighting the pandemic. At the same time, it directs a variety of private entities to operate as quarantine locations or provide other operational support to the public health response, tasking them to submit a full accounting to the federal government for reimbursement. It also expedites procurement for critical public health expenditures, exempting certain purchases of medical supplies and support infrastructure from the legislative framework known as the Government Procurement Reform Act that would ordinarily regulate such direct purchases. These developments represent a distinct challenge for both accountability and transparency in the Philippines. How can there be effective oversight with so much taxpayer money flowing into separate local government units? Conversely, how can the national budget better reflect local realities? For example, the sizable number of rural children who are born at home and whose families therefore struggle to qualify for government support. WeSolve attempts to answer these questions by linking past and current government officials with the communities they serve. Well, good evening. <laughs> good day, uh, uh, Joe. It, it's really an honor to be, to be featured in the World Justice Project. As I mentioned in the email a while ago, um, Leo also mentioned that uh, he had been using some of the uh, cases in the World Justice Project, uh, and even the Rule of Law Solutions Initiative for law classes. So we're very honored uh, to be here. I also wanted to say, you know, the Citizens Budget Tracker really started out as, you know, this this desire to organize to survive. Uh, and this idea that, you know, frontline healthcare workers like my aunt and my cousin, who are um, medical, medical workers uh, in the province, um, need just uh, access to the protective services that they deserve um, as people who serve us during this pandemic. So when the pandemic started um, and the lockdown started in the Philippines in March, um, that was one of the things we heard, right? Medical uh, medical professionals and uh, you know allied healthcare professions not getting personal protective equipment. And the uh, we did do some. Uh, private donation drives to be able to get them the protection they deserve. Uh, but the next logical question there would be, uh, what is the systemic challenge that we're facing? Uh, and one of them really was investigating, uh, understanding, researching, advocating for a better budget. Um, and that's how I was involved in the Citizens Budget Tracker. Um, then we started uh, inviting 
you know, friends um, to be able to help. It started out as a very small thing, um, a spreadsheet, <laughs> a public spreadsheet about, you know, where our government funds going. Um, it's now evolved into this idea and this core idea that technology uh, should be rooted in community organizing and hearing voices uh, from the front lines. Um, and, you know, we can recover from COVID if citizens collaborate to know, care, and engage in this more general budget process. Um, over time, uh, our when our organization wanted to shift uh, to become, uh, you know, try to sustain this work, uh, this very generous volunteer organization that, that we've uh, formed over the past year. Um, we've turned to WESOL, where I am also currently head of practice to help us uh, structure our organization a little bit better, uh, pay our volunteers well. Um, we can discuss more about like the, uh, the specifics of that uh, as, as the interview commences, but I'll, I'll stop here first uh, so that Leah and Jess can also speak. All right, so I guess I'm going to tell my story on how we started with the birth registration initiative under Resolve. Um, we also submitted actually to the World Justice Project. Um, uh, we submitted the, the, the initiative on birth registration. It, it, the trigger was actually also Ken's experience um, because he, he is part of this um, spiritual community wherein they are taking care of um, a family. And um, he discovered from there that even if they they give um, several assistance to the family, they won't be able to really um, fully access the services of the government because they don't they don't have a birth certificate. And then from there, um, we 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 had this thought of um, exploring the issue on birth registration because we also thought. Um, initially that birth certificates are automatically given to children upon birth. But then upon our research, so we proceeded with our research and we realized we were able to discover that there, uh, at least here in the Philippines, the estimate of the our um, Philippine Statistics Authority is that five, there is uh, a five to seven million um, individuals or Filipinos that are still undocumented. And um, there are several reasons for that. So aside from um, the cost barriers and um, aside from the usual economic cost barriers, we also discovered that um, some of the parents, some mothers are unable to register their children because uh, most of the mothers from in far from in far flung areas are what they call this, um, since they don't have um, an easy access to the rural health centers, they would prefer to give birth at home. So upon birth, uh, they, they aren't able to register their children right away because they give birth at home. And there are some local government units here in our country that penalizes um, mothers giving birth at home. We recognize why they do that. That is, um, we... Uh, the LGUs are, or the local government units are doing that because they wanted to encourage the mothers to give birth in accredited facilities. But on the other hand, this um, has an implication on the parents or the mothers um, um, freely registering their children because uh, they fear, instead of the fear of not being identified, they fear of the 
the the penalty that they may receive when the LG would or the local government units would would realize that they have given birth at home and not in the accredited health centers because of their ordinance. So with that, um, we wanted to we wanted to um, to assist. Um, undocumented Filipinos on how they can um, secure birth certificates because we from from our study also we discovered that having a birth certificate would really provide a lot would really open a lot of opportunities for our um, for the Filipinos especially those coming from low income households um, aside from being able to travel because of that's a main requirement in, in securing a passport. They would be um, a lot of children um, are not able to get their diplomas because they don't um, submit their birth certificates. So uh, these are just a few of the benefits of having a birth certificate or, or securing or documenting or registering their identity as Filipinos because um, they are able to access the social welfare services of the government. And with that challenge, we we are aiming to explore partnerships with um, with institutions that have um, that have uh, what they call this a, a base a, um, a, a a huge beneficiary base. So um, at this point, we are exploring with a microfinancial institution to do this project with them to facilitate the birth. Um, registration, the delayed birth registration of their beneficiaries because most of their beneficiaries are also coming from low-income households. And um, and uh, most of them are mothers because they are, uh, um, they are the ones borrowing also loans from the institution. And the institution is very open to do it because they also recognize that um, having their mothers or having their beneficiaries um, registered or have birth certificates would probably enable them to do more, you know, for their for their families and for their lives. So there, so that's our birth registration initiative under Resol. So you're engaged with a variety of issues pertaining to public health and the rule of law. What unifying principles or theories of change uh, bring these various projects together at WeSolve? The areas that we're working on are quite different, um, but every time that we talk about it, we see the similarity in terms of um, we have we, we see a lot of different actors doing the same initiatives, but in a way they are not integrating or they are not talking to one another. So what happens is instead of being able to answer or address the problem directly. Most of the time, it's not as, as it's not as effective because um, the the systems or the actors are working in silos, and that's what we want to do for for we solve that. Uh, for example, in the citizens budget chapter of Ken, um, even though the 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 issue or what they're doing is very much related on the public health finance or public health um, and the finance side they are able to gather a lot of different actors related to the issue and they are they are provide we uh, well this they are providing a space wherein different actors of diverse opinions or the or diverse perspectives um, are able to talk and discuss about these things. So that that's the same way that we wanted to do for, for our birth registration initiative, that 
Um, now, uh, we're, we, we are trying to explore this with the microfinance institution, but also we're going to tap other um, important stakeholders regarding the matter, regarding the issue. So with the local government units, and also we're going to we're also aiming to talk to the local health officials because the registration is actually linked to the uh, the birth of the the birth of children with the mothers and uh, we're going to talk to other related stakeholders that are very relevant you know, to the issue to the matter Joe, just to just to add and try to piece the threads uh, maybe a little bit um thank you Josh um I think access to justice um, and anti-corruption initiatives are all collective action problems. Uh, and that's really what we specialize in, in we solve. Uh, there are social movements that can be formed and organized um, so that citizens of uh, across non-government organizations, government, um, academe, even business can work together on a common solution. Um, and it's interesting to see, because you're right, Joe, that all of these are interconnected. All of these are woven into a web. So our birth registration project, which we really started before COVID, helped influence our recommendations to, in fact, have a pay now, verify later policy. Because we know that low-income families will not have access to uh, the emergency cash subsidies. Um, that are given by government during COVID. Um, and for example, we can, we can discuss a little bit after, maybe after Leo speaks about like the transparency angle here, um, but we use some of those insights to be able to push for better access to government services across the board. And, um, and you know, understanding, all, understanding the co those cost barriers really g gives us a reality check about, you know, what, uh, what our brothers and sisters are facing. Um, and uh, just to tell you a story about one of the families, this teenage mom was talking to me and say, saying, um, Kuya Ken, please help baptize my son and please help um, make sure that we have a birth certificate. I don't want him to be like me. I don't want him to be colorum. Uh, colorum is a, a colloquial word for unregistered motor vehicles. So if they consider themselves that way, um, they won't be able to, you know, actively fight for or advocate for themselves to get the, the government services that they deserve. So uh, indeed, all of these are, uh, all of these are interconnected uh, issues because justice and anti-corruption initiatives are all collective action problems. Thank you, Josh and Ken for that clear and really compelling picture of justice issues impacting the health of vulnerable populations in the Philippines, including families who are living in poverty and healthcare workers who are directly exposed to the virus. Leo, I wonder if you could share your perspective as an attorney regarding how recent changes in the law have created additional challenges for corruption and transparency during the pandemic. So firstly, uh, it's a big honor to be here. Uh, thank you, Joe, Jesh, and Ken. So just to provide a brief background about myself, I am a lawyer by profession. Uh, prior to taking up my master's in public policy degree here in Cambridge, where I'm based now, I was a 
working as a court attorney in the Philippine Supreme Court. And uh, working as a law clerk in the Philippine Supreme Court made me see firsthand um, the weaknesses of the justice system in the Philippines, the slow resolution of cases, and how um, there was a really a great um, inequality when it comes to access to um, um, to uh, access to counsel and access to um, justice in general. Uh, it was uh, during the start of the pandemic when uh, Ken obtained my services uh, to provide a legal perspective as to uh, start of the pandemic. Uh, initially, uh, I got involved with the Citizens Budget Tracker when we when the president, the Philippine president, um, declared uh, an emergency, state of emergency in the Philippines. And uh, there was legislation granting uh, the president emergency powers to handle uh, the pandemic. Uh, which, uh, and from there, a lot of uh, legal issues emerged uh, because that legislation granted the president a, wi a wide range of powers, including power to take over utilities and private companies in the name of um, solving the pandemic. So uh, I was able to conduct a legal audit of that law, and we were able to publish uh, the results of that legal audit together with, um, I think, uh, yeah, Ken can, can, can verify, but, uh, but we likewise published the first set of uh, data on um, the proposed uh, budget uh, being proposed by the government as to uh, how uh, public funds would be spent uh, to uh, solve the pandemic. And eventually, uh, we encountered problems when several government agencies were being stingy and were being closed uh, as to publishing information about uh, the government program dedicated to helping um, small businesses and um, poor Filipinos uh, in coping with the pandemic. Um, and uh, that, that was a, a big hindrance because uh, government agencies were, were not being transparent. It was hard for us to get information uh, on the beneficiaries of the different go government programs that were uh, um, that were uh, put in place in order to help poor Filipinos and poor businesses. Despite the fact that in our constitution, we have the right to information on matters of public concern. And uh, what made matters worse was in the while the right to information is recognized as a fundamental right under our constitution, we still don't have a freedom of information law, which means that that right to information has not yet been operationalized. And in the Philippines, the disclosure of public information is left to the discretion of government officials. And what complicates the matter is uh, because of the Data Privacy Act, government officials are even more stingy as to being transparent. And that was 
um, one of the things that we worked on with the Citizens Budget Tracker, and I think later we can talk more about um, how we were able to um, navigate this problem of lack of transparency. At this point, the whole world is familiar with some of the obstacles the pandemic has created for things like public meetings and other activities that are really central to traditional organizing and movement building. Uh, speaking from the perspective of an organization that is actively responding in the teeth of such an unprecedented emergency, what practical steps have you taken to build resilience and achieve your program goals over the past year? Uh, the interesting thing about organizing during an emergency is you really try to cover all your bases. <laughs> so, so we were very proactive about all the different ways we could possibly influence the way that people access government services. Because again, the issue is we need to we need to survive this pandemic and we need to organize to make sure that our loved ones get the services they deserve. So we there are we over the course of the year we've explored uh, actually six core courses of action but really the core the core really is community organizing right we need to make sure that people's voices are heard uh, in in the policy making bodies that are supposed to represent us so the first the so the so of these uh, uh, branching out from that core theory um there are we've tried six <laughs> six items uh, so the first is we organize to track and research all programs under the emergency act so both the legal the legal concerns um the issues about um how big really is the size of the budget uh, even that is a little bit controversial in the philippines whether or not we have money to actually have a better stimulus program um, and how much of the money has been spent. So that's around $10 billion, as we've seen from our latest audit. Around half of it was spent in the latest report that we saw. Um, and from, at one point uh, last year, uh, in the second tranche of the recovery budget, because there were two laws uh, that were passed in order to pursue the stimulus program in the Philippines, um, um, we really tried to make sure and give uh, give time to make sure that we stand with them um, and help journalists do their core work of reporting the truth because our citizens report the truth. So that's that's part of our core work. We also have project based work. Um, uh, Leo and both Leo and Jesh were involved in you know organizing local communities to verify social amelioration beneficiaries. Uh, Leo can discuss this a little bit more, but. Uh, we pushed clarifications in our Privacy Act uh, with our National Privacy Commission. So we wrote a letter with another larger formation uh, for transparency and accountability. Because if we were to verify, to pay now, verify later, people should have access to information so they know whether their neighbors are getting social amelioration, right? Or whether they're, uh, they're getting social amelioration. So it speeds up social service delivery. Um, uh the the fifth is we organized with scholars to open up contracting data so last year we studied around 21 billion pesos or around 30 of 36 billion in publicly available covid contracts so uh 50 pesos is to a dollar so we we wanted to improve the quality of this data and we uh we found that around 60 percent 
of the value of these contracts do not have uh, the sufficient goods description to warrant price comparisons. This is a finding in itself that we're uh, mobilize. We're, we're we're in that stage where we're organizing with the procurement at uh, the technical services of the procurement agencies uh, to make sure that there's a movement around this. And lastly, we organized with local governments to open up local budgets. So we worked with a municipality called Kumaka Quezon. Uh, the, uh, we advised them for their local budget tracker. And we submitted that really nice local budget tracker at the municipal level um, to influence the national reporting standards for COVID. So uh, across all uh, 1,700 local government units, cities, municipalities, and provinces in the Philippines. So um, Joe, it's... Uh, I apologize that it's kind of like a, a mouthful to say all of the things that we were involved in over the past year and kind of like how all of these are connected. But really, again, emergency mode, organized to survive. Uh, our loved ones need uh, uh, need the services in order for us to recover from this pandemic. Uh, and we also discover all of these interconnected issues. As public documents go, the Citizens Budget Tracker has had a really interesting journey. So it started as a humble spreadsheet, but has quickly grown into this systems-level analysis of public accountability in the Philippines with lots of voices weighing in from different uh, sectors and, and partner organizations. And I think one of the most impressive features of your project is that it represents a truly grassroots initiative to identify an emergent threat to the rule of law, uh, to make sense of its technical features, and then to implement countermeasures in this agile and very broad-based coalition that you've described. Uh, how were you able to grasp the problem so quickly and, and scale up your response in such an open way? Yeah, so Joe, we live in a rural area, actually. Um, and I grew up in a rural part of the Philippines. And so really my indication of whether or not uh, government services need to, need to get here is whether my family members get it. Because many of my family members are frontline healthcare workers. So that's really essentially, right? If, we want, if I want us and my loved ones to survive, then we need to make sure that we get them the adequate support. So that really is like probably for me the bottom line. Um, uh, I'm sure Leo and Jesh can also share a little bit about uh, their stories. Um, but then we started to really figure out and research about the resources that are being spent. So we gathered a lot of a lot of friends. <laughs> First, Leo. Uh, Leo helped us understand the. Uh, coronavirus emergency budget uh, and understand the, the new powers that are granted by the president. I didn't understand it. Um, but uh, Leo helped give us that, you know, legal audit that allowed us to understand here are the, here are the, here's the power uh, and here are the limits to that power. Right? So that's, that's one, uh, that's one set. Maybe, maybe before we really uh, dove into the uh, budget and did the spreadsheet, part of the initial audit that we did was we also audited and understood the powers of the president. So uh, in that spreadsheet, you also see a, a tab on, on the powers of the president. Um, 
and then uh, the interesting thing with this uh, with our with our case, I think Joe is every time we would open up an opportunity and a call for help, people would respond. Uh, and one thing that we realized as this initiative kind of uh, kind of snowballed, uh, the ver version zero went viral. <laughs> uh, and it went the rounds, uh, and then it even uh, uh, we were also able to even brief uh, the uh, congressional staff. Um, and the reason we 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 uh, we were able to do this is because many of us in our group also had previous experience in government. Uh, Leo experience in the Supreme Court. Jess also has public service experience. Um, many of the people who are volunteers uh, were uh, certified public accountants or auditors uh, in in audit firms, uh, data scientists who would then help us, you know, here are the technical details, here is how we can communicate it to policymakers and the general public, including journalists. So really the core of that work that allowed us to branch into these all, all, all these other forms of organizing work was the research. Right. The research that a community—it's—it's a, it's a community basically asking, "What can we do to help?" And in order for us to understand what can we do to help, um, we should research about what's happening. So, so that—that's I think like the 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 genesis of the of all these different uh, projects. And then people would suggest items, um, and then we would explore and. Since we were in an emergency, we just go ahead. Um, uh, the largest part of the budget uh, was really the emergency uh, social uh, what we call social amelioration, which are essentially emergency cash transfers to uh, to Filipino families. Um, that's how uh, the research on birth registration, Jesh and I uh, uh, wrote. Uh, came into the equation. We wrote an op-ed on um, on access to cash transfers. Um, Jesh, maybe you can discuss a little bit about the process uh, that went into that, and uh, Leo even um, about the National Privacy Commission. When the a lot of our um, a lot of the civil society members are having doubts on registering to the national ID system because they fear that the data that the government will get might be used for red tagging or identifying persons as activists, as enemies of the government, as terrorists. Also, because of the anti-terror law that was also enacted. Um, during uh, the pandemic period. So with that, um, of course, we have to find, even if, uh, given that that is the issue, that there is a security issue with the national ID, of course, we still have to find a way on how to address that problem. And we see that um, being registered, having a birth certificate might be, the most secure way that we could find if people are having doubts on being registered in, with the national ID. And we believe that um, having birth certificate is really a basic right that everyone should have. But then the research has informed us that in the case of low-income families, that is not a fact. 
impact for them because of the economic barriers that and economic and I think knowledge barriers because they are not fully aware of the benefits that they might get by having a birth certificate. It's really useful to hear how you work to convene stakeholders who had perfectly valid reasons for adopting diverse and even conflicting views about a key policy provision such as the national ID law. What about government? Can you provide an example where directly engaging with government stakeholders helped clear the way for transparency or accountability? All right. So Joe, just to give you a, a just to give you a brief background about the transparency and accountability advocacy of the Citizens Budget Tracker Group. When the uh, the law passed granting the president uh, uh, wide power to um, implement uh, um, projects to address the pandemic was passed. There was a big problem that emerged uh, concerning transparency and accountability. Because under that law, the president was actually mandated to provide a report to Congress every week. Uh, reporting on the specifics of how uh, the stimulus package was being implemented. But unfortunately, week, week in and week out, uh, the report being submitted by the president to the public lacked uh, specifics as to how the COVID budget was being spent. And people were starting to be uh, suspicious about how public funds were being spent. In fact, in social media, the hashtag nasaan ang 200 billion pesos uh, trended in English. Where is the 200 billion pesos? People were uh, people were really getting suspicious about how public funds were being uh, spent by the government, and that was when. Uh, and this is a this is the brainchild of Ken. Uh, this was uh, how the uh, the advocacy of creating an easily accessible platform wherein the uh wherein the actual spending of public funds targeted uh targeted to uh, providing stimulus and helping uh, poor Filipinos and poor businesses in the time of covid providing this easy accessible platform emerged because if the government won't tell us where the funds are being spent, then let's collate all of the data in a very uh, accessible format and uh, help the people be informed on how public funds are being spent during the pandemic. But unfortunately, uh, many government agencies were being very reluctant in providing access uh, to a lot of information, particularly information as to the list of aid beneficiaries. And uh, this became an issue in the Philippines because there was there were a lot of reports about corruption in how uh, money that was allotted uh, for uh, the social amelioration were being misspent. And there were even reports of uh, names being doubled in the list or names being uh, not being found in the list, list of people that were eligible to receive the aid. 
And uh, a lot of government agencies uh, tried to def defend their stance of non-transparency by using the Data Privacy Act. They were saying that, you know, we don't want to be uh, subject to, lit to litigation because under, uh, under Philippine law, under the Data Privacy Act, uh, government officials and even private entities that disclose information without the consent of the owner of that information may be subject to criminal liability. But uh, through our research, uh, through our review, it was actually made clear that the Data Privacy Act does not uh, prevent the disclosure of information relating to uh, government uh, financial aid. So um, that was really one of our main advocacies uh, to allay the fears of government agencies and uh, bureaucrats in government that you know you have nothing to fear by being transparent. You're not violating any privacy law. You you would be acting under you would be you, the act of being transparent is in accordance with our constitution in fulfillment of the people's right to information and uh, our uh, lobbying uh, efforts uh, came into fruition when uh, through coordinating with the Tr Data Privacy Commission, which is the, uh, the, the government agency tasked to implement data privacy law in the Philippines, uh, with the help of um, the civil society sector, particularly an orga organization called the Right to Know Right Now Coalition, which is composed of um, advocates of the freedom of information. The Data Privacy Commission actually published an advisory opinion uh, clarifying that the disclosure of information on the beneficiaries of the, of the social amelioration program, the publication of that information is actually not violative of the, of the Data Privacy Act and that it is actually legal for government agencies to be very transparent with respect to that information. So I think uh, that development was a, a good illustration of how um, coordinating with government bodies can produce uh, good outcomes. Thanks, Leo. That's a really encouraging example. And I think it speaks to one of the core theories of change that we often discuss at the World Justice Project, which is this notion of islands of integrity. Right, this idea that within any government, uh, no matter how a particular country may score on the rule of law index, there are bound to be individuals, departments, um, government agencies, where there really is a hunger for strengthening the rule of law. There, there really is political will um, and a desire to affect positive change. Uh, and the task really is to sort of uh, connect these islands together into a, a, an archipelago, if you will, of you know, uh, rule of law or justice champions um, who are working and trying to share some of the best tools and techniques for strengthening the rule of law in their particular context. Yeah, that, that's that's exactly right, Joe. And um, you know, it's it's also very interesting that you know we have to make sure that the funds get to the beneficiaries. And it does not just protect the beneficiaries, it also protects like 
government champions inside because there are also government champions inside who want to disclose information. So the advisory opinion that was given by NPC, uh, National Privacy Commission, basically says you can champion transparency. It's okay. So, <laughs> so I think that's I think the the interesting thing we're we're just one part of much larger formations and groups that push for transparency. But this was our contribution to that larger objective. Like we're not claiming that we're the like we're the sole owner of this movement, right? We're we're one part, and we contribute to those larger movements. Um, I think one of the challenges, at least in in the context of what we are doing now, is that um, the the institutions that we want to partner with have their own challenges that they have to face, and uh, we can't um, really tell them that this is the problem that they should focus on because they have um, other challenges. And for this microfinancing institution, the challenge that they are facing is how they can assist their beneficiaries who were affected by the lockdown, how they are going to help them um, bring back their um, their economic stability and their families and their homes. And we can't really um, force them to stop it for the meantime and let's focus on birth registration. So what we have what we are trying to do now is to to integrate the the issue into what they are doing. So it's it's somehow informing them about the value of not really telling them to stop what they are doing because what they are doing is really important, but it's more of informing them that you what you're doing is very important, but this issue would addressing this issue would add value to what you are doing now. It might make um, the lives of your beneficiaries even better if we integrate the initiative that we are proposing. Thank you, Jesh. Ken, you've discussed your efforts to mobilize civil society and to empower justice champions within government. But building a movement for accountability obviously implies a third pillar of society, and that is the voting public. How did you approach the work of educating and empowering voters to advocate for a budget that is more responsive to their needs? So the educational piece uh, starts, I think, with simplifying an, a very abstract concept. Right? The concept is budgeting, um, public budgeting especially. Um, and we create an image uh, called watering a garden. Um, in the early days of you know, the pandemic, uh, it's very difficult to distinguish between, uh, you know, public officials saying we don't have money because money can mean either of two things, right? Money can mean the cash that you raise, which for us represents the water or the budget authorization. How large is the bucket? Um, and we needed to make that distinction early on. So we used this, uh, this image that we use not only in our you know, media interviews on TV, but we recognize that it was effective even in radio where it's still like, uh, where, where, where a lot of people still get news uh, in the Philippines. So we, we explain that concept. We share like the three big numbers about how much cash is there, how much is water, how large is the coronavirus budget, etc. 
just the size of the bucket. And then how much water has been watered onto the gardens and whether the, the gardens are blooming, which are the programs. Okay. So it's a very simple one-minute explanation about the budget, but it like it, it clarifies a lot of important things. Uh, we even go deeper into the metaphor, for example, by saying that there's a congress of carpenters decides on the size of the bucket. Uh, <laughs> um, all of these different things and nuances in our public debate. So there's that piece, like using an image, a concrete image to be able to share that uh, to the public. And this, this, this image also became very, very useful when public officials started saying we don't have money. Um, and uh, we came out and said, we actually do. <laughs> we do have money. We have cash, right? But the problem now is, are we, do we have a big enough bucket to hold that cash, right? So, so those, those types of conversations, I think, uh, were very important in the uh, educational piece. So that's like the media facing uh, like standing with the journalists, um, making sure that there are people who report and write. Uh, and we do interviews with journalists who also do it in the like, print, print media uh, and digital media. But there's also the work of educating the larger coalitions that have more sectoral focuses. Um, and this is where I think the work, the work now is uh, a little more focused towards um, because right now, yes, we were able to um, to study what the larger move the larger movements of the budgets are. Then what, right? So now we use that knowledge, or uh, the knowledge of the public budget process, and the fact that you know we can still make our stimulus budget much larger, um, to be able to inform and give this information to. Uh, the coalitions, for example, of public transport. And we realized through our research there that road-based public transportation has gotten near zero uh, budgets in the Philippines over the past four years. And that knowledge, you, you know, can, it is, is, is very concerning, right? But it also empowers people to demand more. So, <laughs> so, this coalition that we advise were 140 organizations and then 77,000 individual signatories pushing for better protected lanes, better contracts for transport workers, better accessibility services for, for persons with disabilities, uh, climate justice advocates, etc. And we were the budget advisors <laughs> of that much larger coalition. So we can also research on like the specific sectoral items so that when we started lobbying with them, um, for the second coronavirus response uh, recovery program, we were able to uh, to to push for that budget um, and uh, and work with them on this. So so it's a and even uh, this also the work of you know informing and embedding ourselves in that larger coalition meant that we could also advise on like specific strategic items. So, so for example, we, we crossed a point at which it appeared that there was no compromise to be made for a certain line item. We wanted all our roads to have at least 50% for walking, cycling, and public transportation because a nine in out of 10 Filipinos don't own a car, right? But our roads are meant for cars, not for people uh, in the Philippines. So we wanted to reverse that trend. Um, we couldn't get that provision passed 
So what we had instead was a separate special provision that required like all road and bridge projects to have like better walkways, protected bike lanes, uh, and accessible facilities. Um, it's not it's it's not self-enforcing, right? We need to make sure that like communities are armed with this knowledge, knowing that there's a law that empowers them to do this. Um, and that's really the next wave of, of, of organizing that we're, we're pushing. That's the frontier, I think, in our work. Leo, earlier Ken used the phrase, organize to survive, which I think captures the urgency and difficulty of operating in a context where corruption and transparency truly have become a life and death issue. But when you do look ahead, as the world pivots from treading water to building back better, what risks or opportunities may confront citizens of the Philippines once their country emerges from its acute phase of the pandemic? Um, one uh, very uh, distressing development, legal development in the Philippines right now would be um, efforts by the current administration in stifling the freedom of expression. Uh, uh, recently, a new law, and I think uh, Jesh mentioned it a while ago, the anti-terrorism law was passed uh, by Congress and signed by President Duterte into law. And under that law, uh, legitimate critics and dissenters of the government may be characterized as terrorists that can be arrested uh, by mere suspicion. One critical problem right now in the Philippines uh, in the legal front would be you know, ensuring that citizens will have that right to freely express themselves, either whether for or against the government. And uh, that has, uh, uh, that is surely related also to uh, the pandemic and how the government is respond responding to COVID-19. We see a lot of people uh, being fearful uh, in expressing their sentiments about the response of the government. And uh, right now, there really is this sense of uh, fear and trepidation about um, freedom of expression. And uh, with respect to uh, vaccinations, that is also um, a very uh, controversial issue in the Philippines right now. Um, our president has uh, publicly declared his preference for a specific brand of uh, vaccines, a uh, uh, vaccine uh, developed in China. And uh, people were questioning why uh, the administration is declaring its preference for a vaccine that is apparently more uh, expensive compared to other vaccines uh, developed uh, here in the UK and in the US. And uh, also considering the relatively uh, low efficacy rate of that vaccine. And again, I tie that up with th this climate of fear in our country wherein uh, people are, are are starting to to, to uh, to be uh, reluctant in expressing their uh, sentiments uh, against the government because 
you know, at any at any given moment, they may they might be uh, characterized as an enemy of the of the state, a terrorist. Uh, and uh, so I I really hope that uh, the Supreme Court will strike this law as unconstitutional, which will be a clear signal uh, to the government that you know the freedom of expression is still alive in the Philippines. So we uh, await that uh, critical decision. And you know journalists are um, there are a number of journalists that are being subject to legal prosecution. Uh, a notable example would be Maria Ressa, uh, a former correspondent of CNN who is the head of uh, Rappler, which is the largest online news platform in the Philippines. And you know, she has been subject to 10 warrants of arrests already for uh, charges ranging from tax evasion to libel. And uh, that adds to uh, this climate of, of, of fear in our country but thankfully you know people are still and this, despite this this climate of, of fear people are still uh also in a fighting mode people are, are uh still uh trying to trend the hashtag Duterte. uh once in a while uh are still trying to be critical as, to be as much as possible critical online but you know it's it cannot be doubted that uh there is uh, this attack on uh, freedom of expression and we hope that uh we we hope to, to to see a reversal of that in in the budget tracker we actually have this prayer so this prayer is prayer for research and public service it says God grant us the grace to desire critique. Uh, and we've we've prayed this prayer actually in many of our public um, like interviews. Um, and uh, we think it should apply to, <laughs> to our public servants who represent us. Um, and right for us, for us, whatever means we can we, we have as citizens to be able to fight and protect government champions who want to champion transparency and want to speed up access to social services, we're going to do, right? Whether that's standing with uh, journalists to be able to protect them, whether that's uh, pushing for legislation that allows for better transparency, uh, the philosophy of the group is we have to do it. Um, but we also know that there are larger conditions that need to be met. Um, and the fact that the government uh, currently has, uh, you know, the, this reputation that it doesn't take kindly to criticism that shouldn't prevent us from doing this, right? And in fact, we should do it more. <laughs> so that's why the strategy of the budget tracker has been, you know, we can't do this alone. Let's join the larger movements. Uh, let's contribute in like our special way <laughs> uh, to these larger movements. So from transparency to public transport and mobility to uh, even healthcare professionals, um, we've, with whom we've also advised uh, in uh, in the development of the health budget for 2021, um, even joining much larger budget coalitions fighting for better 2021 budgets, uh, which we also joined. Right, so we know that especially at the time of you know uh, yeah you know a populist authoritarian regime, <laughs> uh, we should. 
push for um we should push for these collection act collective action movements um and, and fight for rights for our birth registration initiative we just finished the research um last year and then when we were about to um launch or present the findings and then um mobilize stakeholders around the issue um we weren't able to do that because of the pandemic so we had to also shift our um shift our initiatives so we're we're just about to um to close or to 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 decide with the part with our partner microfinancing institution on how to proceed with it um because and um, we are yet to really finalize the partnership to really finalize the 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 initiative with them to work in the communities but one of the what well, one of the things that we are anticipating now is how are we going to convince the local government units that this is an issue that should be um addressed um and how are we going to um influence policy at at at, at least for now at the local level and eventually voice out or influence the policy at the national level to have a more com comprehensive civil registration system in the country because apparently um uh, we have this issue that is not really being talked about because of the other economic issues that we have but looking at it in a systematic way this is one of the one of the uh, probably one of the hurdles or one of the um, inhibitors in the system that also has that needs to be addressed in order to in order to um, address the other systematic problems about poverty here in the country. Ken, I thought we might conclude with your message to other justice champions, whether in civil society or in government, who are working to try to create a culture of accountability in their countries. What key lessons do you draw from your efforts coordinating the activities of WeSolve and its partners over the past year? All of us should ask for help, and people will come. There's one way to view citizen citizenship, uh, which is, I think, a philosophical difference that we have with many people who believe that citizens should, you know, should be policed more than they should be given an opportunity to serve. But if you give Filipinos, if you give citizens an opportunity to serve, they will respond. And this project, I think, is a testament to it. Um, we're a community asking, what can we do to help? And we're trying our best in our, you know, in our spheres of influence, um, and uh, we're we're really pushing. We're really trying to push in 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 those frontiers. Um, Joe, the the key thing is, you know, there are also champions inside government. I think the role of civil society will be to try to find them and help support them. Uh, we know this for a fact because we also served in government, and you know, it's it's important to make sure that they have a community uh, outside to support them. And uh, I wanted to end on this final note. I think, like, the core of what politics should be should be, you know, the people who are most affected by the reforms get to draft the policies. And that's, I think, one of the core ideas that we have. If we empower people with the knowledge and the research and the facts 
and the science behind budgeting, mobility, transport. Um, and if we work together, we can come up with um, a systemic uh, solution that allows us to recover from this pandemic. It's a lot of hard work. We also lost a lot of battles, like the size of the stimulus. We weren't able to win that battle, uh, but it was a key strategic loss from our end. Uh, but we keep fighting. Um, we're going to continue to uh, push the envelope. Well, Ken, Jesh, Leo, thank you for your time today. It's been really terrific learning about the great work that you've done in the Philippines. And thanks to all the teams who prepared such strong applications for the 2021 World Justice Challenge. I want to remind our listeners that they can learn more about the World Justice Challenge and connect with our finalists by visiting community.worldjusticeproject.org. Thank you so much, Joe. And thank you, Jesh and Leo, for your time. Thank you, Joe, Ken, and Leo. Thank you so much, Joe. Thanks, Ken. And thanks, Jesh. I'm Joe Haley, and this has been Rule of Law Talk in conversation with We Solve Philippines. Thank you for listening.